The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, 13th January, 2022. Professor Mary Louise McClaws covers the current Omicron wave, boosters, rapid antigen testing, and long COVID in this podcast. Now, Professor McClaws, tell us about yourself. Oh, um, I'm an epidemiologist, and I've, this is about my fourth or fifth um, pandemic that I've had. Uh, I don't do this forever. I, I basically do patient safety for infection control. So in between time when, when there's a nasty outbreak, I look at that from an infection control epidemiology perspective uh, with the World Health Organization. Or for example, during SARS, I worked for uh, the woman who ran the SARS designated hospital looking at why healthcare workers were acquiring SARS. So Mm -hmm. I examined that. Then I was really fortunate to work with a brilliant man from Beijing who was looking at how well Beijing responded to SARS uh, back in 2003. And we wrote a, a piece about what would happen, what would be different um next time and he was the expert mm. who went into wuhan and oh. uh put uh, wuhan uh as a, you know with a, a circle around it and stopped uh anyone from leaving or entering wuhan uh so he's pretty amazing um professor liang an amazing man so i really enjoyed working with him i loved working with um Lily Chu uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, so I've had some great times doing things like that. Uh, my first outbreak was HIV mm-hmm. back in the 80s. Um, but in between time, uh, I've uh, had the pleasure of uh, looking at infection control for you know sepsis, um, central lines, bloodstream infection, and surveillance is my expertise. So I was uh, a WHO advisor to Malaysia right. uh, to assist them in surveillance, and then uh, the um, WHO advisor to China for them setting their surveillance system up as well. Uh, so yeah, so I've been very lucky working with lots of different countries, uh, including um, Turkey, and I adore Turkey, and have uh, done some great work. I was sent there because there was an outbreak. In, in a hospital and I then uh, helped them from there on and made great friends and yes, so I really miss seeing Turkey, miss going to China and love Hong Kong and haven't been there for a long time. So uh, that's who I am. And one day, Mary Lewis, I do hope you'll be able to go and enjoy all of them again. But Thank right you. now, Mary Lewis, we are right in the midst of another pandemic. Look, um, it, it appears as if this Omicron tsunami is just growing larger and larger. So the question to you is, um, what's happening now and where are we headed? With the point being, some people saying 
maybe the Omicron is also the end of the pandemic. So lots of things to talk about. Well, uh, certainly Omicron uh, would appear as if it's sadly just a new variant of concern. So in Cameroon, uh, recently in a couple of days ago, uh, there was a new variant of interest called B1640.2. Mm -hmm. and it's between Delta and Omicron. Uh, then it went to France and about a third of cases in France, about you know, the 900 cases, were moderate to severe cases. So something was going on with this uh, Omicron plus Delta. Mm -hmm. In the rest of the world, it was a bit like Australia where most countries like the UK, for example, uh, America, the EU, all had Delta and then Omicron came in and because it's so infectious and a lot of people already had good um, vaccination, uh, that uh, Omicron took over faster. In New South Wales, it looks as if there's a difficulty in understanding how much Delta and how much Omicron is um, circulating. Mm -hmm. The Department of Health are very, very overworked and they usually provide us with some really great uh, surveillance, weekly surveillance. And at the moment, the last one I ever got was to the week of December 18. And usually their weekly surveillance is great where they tell you what the proportion of cases have been who've been infected with Delta. Mm -hmm. And just FYI, way back in November, uh, there were uh, an increase in cases who'd been vaccinated and that was about 15%. And then, then that increased uh, slightly by the end of November to about 30%. And then all of a sudden in December, it started increasing to 40%, 50%. And then most recently in mid-December, about 70% of cases were vaccinated. And that's because the neutralizing antibodies start declining and you can get Delta or Omicron, but certainly by December 18, it was mostly Delta. And so they certainly were the majority of cases mm -hmm. they weren't the majority of hospitalization and mostly the majority of hospitalization were unvaccinated mm -hmm. so um then of course in december the 16th i was part of a who uh, well meeting where some amazing virologists around the world shared uh their experience that and of course mostly it was Delta with some countries starting to get Omicron, mm -hmm. but um, certainly with um, the UK, they were experienced an enormous risk uh, of uh, Delta and Omicron. And they do the Public Health England reports. They're usually called something like technical briefing. And at the time they had technical briefing 31. I think it's now about 34. Mm -hmm. So if you ever to go into um, Google and just, you know, put it in, you know, um, Public Health England technical briefing, you can get them for free. And my goodness, they do a great job. So they showed that uh, Delta for um, 
household contacts were about seven nearly no sorry 10.7 percent mm -hmm. and then with omicron if for household it was uh, nearly 22 so it was twice as likely already so they had a lot of cases even though the case numbers were less certainly the secondary attack rates were higher mm -hmm. so of course they've had more cases and so all the other countries around the world sharing with the world health organization showed that Omicron was highly infectious. Omicron didn't necessarily, by that stage, cause more deaths at all or more hospitalization. In fact, the UK started saying that they had a 20 to 30 percent decrease in hospitalization. Mm -hmm. And so did Scotland, had a great decrease by about two thirds. And uh, Denmark uh, had an increase, but they hadn't yet started talking about um their hospitalization yet so that was december now january has changed and the next time we have a meeting i'll i'll keep you up to date about mm -hmm. what they found but basically they were saying well omicron causes less uh, frequent infections and that's probably true except if you've never been vaccinated so if your patients have never been vaccinated they may need to go to hospital and uh so there's been a lot of experience around the world showing um neutralizing antibodies decline uh so your your patients who have had their second dose and no um booster three months ago will now be at risk of uh, acquiring infection. So it's certainly uh, an interesting experience. And mm. most of these uh, places overseas shared the same sort of thing, that it's very important to think about boosters. Now, remember, about a month before that at WHO, World Health Organization and the virologists weren't excited about um, people showing that yes neutralizing antibodies had declined mm -hmm. and therefore maybe we needed boosters they really didn't like that because boosters basically were concerning who that it was taking away you know doses that could have been given to people in low and middle income countries that hadn't yet had even a first dose but after the 16th of december uh, things changed and they really started talking about the need for booster shots. Absolutely. So um, the UK did a very nice um, showing of uh, the importance of the boosters. And they certainly showed very early on about the wild strain and Delta decreasing neutralizing antibodies pretty soon afterwards. Mm -hmm. So at about um, for AstraZeneca and Pfizer in the UK, um, certainly with Pfizer at four and five months, it's about 36% vaccine effectiveness against a symptomatic infection. And about six months, that goes down to about 30%, 34%. So in other words, it was pretty obvious that at four months, you really needed it. And this was before Australia moved um the booster shots to four months and astrazeneca gosh by six months you were only ever covered against uh, an infection at about 5.6 percent wow. it was shocking so 
it explains what we are now seeing. And I would ask you that if you had particularly young adults under 40 who desperately haven't had their booster shot, they need their booster after three months because um, it's the only way that if they do acquire Delta or Omicron, they're hardly going to feel it and they're going to be better than feeling that they've lost their taste or they've lost their smell. That's a very important message uh, that we can help to deliver. I'm just wondering, in terms of messaging, how well do you think we're going with regard messaging the boosters, meaning uh, our uptake of boosters following the same trajectory as the first and second jabs? Well, I do think that everybody understands they need the booster. But what I do think is the problem is the government hasn't obviously has a problem with availability because they're not making it obvious that if you're even at four months or even three months, if you can get your hands on the vaccine, you're not going to have a bad time getting that third shot even at three months um, or at the beginning of four months. So it's very hard for them, uh, for people to who are telling me they can't get their booster shot early, even at four months. So... I, I personally think it's got a lot more to do with availability than really with the evidence that most countries around the world have shown that your neutralizing antibodies do decline at three months. Your T cells probably still work and stop you from dying and getting a moderate infection. That's great. But it's, it's great to have a third shot so that if you get infected, you either don't have symptoms or they're mild, you know, a bit like a cold. Going back to the thought that some would have said that this Omicron wave is almost like in itself a vaccine because it's such a mild uh, infection. Uh, what's the feeling at WHO? Well, WHO understands that Omicron is causing this reduction. And certainly the UK presented the Omicron change in the vaccine efficacy in, in massively against AstraZeneca and Pfizer. They didn't show it against uh, Moderna, but certainly that uh, against your response to Omicron, you get a response of 75.5% with Pfizer for your third dose against Omicron for any symptom which is great news hmm. uh, and that may last you a good three months easy peasy because that's what certainly Pfizer has has done once you start looking at um, is starting to go down uh, gosh at about three months to four months it really does start to decline rapidly it's quite bizarre isn't it but at least you won't die and you, you won't get very very sick at all that would give us enough time to see if those new, or if you like, the newer protein adjuvant vaccines might actually become available in Australia. Mm -mm, exactly. Oh, and let me remind you that if you have that Moderna or, well, if you have Pfizer, certainly you're great against uh, Omicron at about 75.5%. Mm -hmm. But if you, and you have that against Delta, it's about 96%. It's huge. Right. So it's fantastic. 
So it'd be great if the governments on the East Coast, where most of the infections are occurring, basically told us what the rate of Delta to Omicron is. Mm. I have a belief that it's more likely Delta than Omicron, that I think more Delta than Omicron. I could be wrong, but certainly looking at that weekly surveillance report back by the um, Department of Health in New South Wales, it was quite obvious that Omicron was about, when they did when they did Omicron for confirmed cases, there were about 315, but it was only on a small proportion. And the confirmed Delta was just over 2,000. Right. Mm. So, but that was by the 18th of December. So, you know, that's what, nearly four weeks away? So uh, a lot of things could happen, but we don't have the evidence for that yet. So let's hope that we get evidence, but regardless, that Delta will really look after your patients for going into hospital. And it's more likely, uh, you know, as I mentioned, (laughs) by December 18, the cases who were fully vaccinated, 70% were uh, certainly uh, fully vaccinated and they were a case, uh, but they weren't necessarily hospitalized. But they they were known at that stage with a PCR. But remember, we don't seem to use a PCR on everybody. Mm. And some of those people who were, you know, may have felt a little unwell or may have felt worried. Um, so it would be really very helpful if uh, governments were given we're giving rapid antigen tests to everybody uh, or GPs were given rapid antigen tests to do for their patients because a lot of their patients won't afford a rapid antigen test, even though they're about $10 each. Mm. Um, And they're so much cheaper than a PCR. And they're very, very, very good for uh, testing if they truly are negative. So most of those test results for negativity uh, their specificity of a rat goes somewhere between 98 and 100%. So mm-hmm. that's pretty fabulous. If you're going to do once off, the GPs should identify. There are about three, K, three ones that have been approved by TGA that are 100% accurate if they think you're negative and you turn out to be negative. So you only really need to test them once to know that you've got the right um, answer. For the others, there are about four of them that have a specificity of 99%. If you do it two days in a row, that's 99.9%. So that's pretty jolly high. (laughs) uh, That you know, and soon that goes to 99.99% very, very rapidly. For the sensitivity of a rapid antigen test, they all started about 88%. And there are only, there's only about five of them that are over that in the 90s. So there's 93, 97, and there's even one that's 100%. So uh, if you're doing it on somebody quickly who's got symptoms, they're not going to be as good as a PCR. Um, But, you know, if they don't have any symptoms, but they're worried and they're talking to their GP about, you know, I live with somebody who has a positive result PCR for for Omicron or Delta, uh, and they're tested in the G, with the GP uh, with a really high level 
uh, it's going to be very, very, very good against, you know, with specificity. Uh, but remind your patients that Omicron seems to uh, have a 70 times higher a replication in the throat than Delta. It's huge and, uh, and it's fast. And so um, you're likely to catch it uh, through some, from somebody's throat. And so talking to them or kissing them. So if you live with somebody that you normally kiss them, don't. If you live with somebody that you talk to, make sure that they're wearing a mask if they're concerned that they've got uh, Omicron because uh, it will come out pretty easily from their throat. You just brought up some issues regarding equity again, uh, Mary Louise, you know, um, whether or not um, having boosters will suck up the vaccines from countries that are not vaccinated. And now you also mentioned that with the rat tests, uh, it is really um, not affordable to all uh, Australians. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, that it should be given to all, and it does make good sense. Yeah, look, um, the active cases um, around Australia <clears throat> have increased dramatically, and, and this is problematic. Uh, so I'm not sure if this is what you were aiming at, but certainly yesterday there was a 16% increase in uh, case numbers across all of the states and territories, um, you know, regardless of which state it was, you know, in New South Wales, there were nearly 304,000 active cases. And then the next group I know was Victoria at 161,000 active cases and so forth. So across all of the states and territories, it has increased uh, from the day before by 16%. However, David, if you have a look at adjusted active cases by 100,000 population, so you're looking at exactly how many 100,000 people have a case, it's New South Wales at 3,742 per 100,000, mm -hmm. followed by Victoria. Now, this is interesting because previously to this, a couple of days ago, on the 8th, the next one was South South Australia, but Victoria, it's uh, 2,429 per 100,000. And then South Australia, well, about 1,680 per 100,000. So if you're ever looking at active cases and you want to see how well your state is doing, please try and divide it by your proportion of staff in your state because that will give you a good idea about the uh, risk of infection by basically uh, population density. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. So yeah, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia so far, then Queensland, Tasmania, ACT, Northern Territories and Western Australia. And now there has been a big increase, just FYI. Now I don't mean to be difficult, but there has been a big increase in cases in Victoria. Now, why is that? Mm -hmm. Because back on the 8th of, of January, interestingly, they started to look at rapid antigen test results. Wow. And then they had a look and they gave it all of the rapid antigen tests. They then divided it up and basically gave it by days. 
which basically meant that that added to PCR tests. Now, I'm hoping that in Victoria, what they'll do is more likely every time they get rapid antigen test results, they'll actually give the result by the day. <laughs> but several days ago, they did not. And they had multiple case numbers where they just separated it by, you know, 1,000, 1,078 each day from the sort of 3rd of January onwards, which was a bit weird. But I think they'll get their act together. And basically, every state needs to develop an app yeah. so that when they've got the results from the rapid antigen test and the result comes through to the Department of Health, it needs to go by the date. And then okay. that needs to be added on that day to the PCR. It just makes sense that you report um, your rapid antigen tests via an app um, rather than just inform a GP as if mm -hmm. your GP hasn't got enough work to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We really do need that. It's pretty easy to make an app. So that would really be very helpful. And I think what is happening, I'm pretty sure that New South Wales Health will realise that they've got to have an app and they've got to somehow include rapid antigen testing in the tents. And so they've got public and private laboratories giving out um, PCR, but they could have another tent or, you know, another line for those without symptoms who desperately want a rapid antigen test because they're worried. They live with somebody or they've met somebody and um, then they can, you know, the person who gets their test result in that tent immediately puts it on that app that, no, I was negative or I'm positive and that was um, verified by the PCR and a watch this space that would be very very helpful but 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 just to remind you something unusual happened yesterday in um, new south wales when we had dropped from the 9th of january from 30,000 cases mm -hmm. to 20,293 mm -hmm. so that was a drop and i can only assume that many people decided not to go in and get a pcr I don't know, but that was a really big drop. Uh, and when I looked at the um, testing rate, because I've been calculating rates every day, and you know, yesterday we had 84,000 tests and the day before it was not quite 99,000. Mm. So it's really, really dropping. And mm. so that, you know, 30,000 positive cases dropped to yesterday to 20,000, that dropped because there'd also been you know, about, let's see now, uh, 18,000 uh, fewer uh, tests. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, people are not getting very excited about uh, the, the, the test availability. And yeah. yet Australians are great. You know, they're, they're quite remarkable how good we are and we could be even better. So uh, I'm a little disappointed in the lack of um, cooperation around the testing. And I... I understand, I think your first question was basically, how do we see Omicron and this is, going, is this going to be the, the beginning to the end? I don't think it is, but I certainly understand that we've got infection. We've, some of us have been boosted, some haven't. Uh, so some of us have good antibodies 
and some have got neutralizing antibodies that are waning. And we certainly will get infection. It won't be as bad as it ever has been before most of us were vaccinated. Uh, and we will live with that. But gosh, it would be so much better if we had a rapid antigen test to make sure that we weren't causing problems to those people who may not even want to catch it. I just get a feeling um, that this concept of living with COVID was thrown out without actually preparing um, the whole nation for it in terms of supplies of vaccines, rapid antigen testings, reporting systems. It was just not there. And, and they were just told to live with it. And, and policies just seemed to me to be made on the run and, and um, holes needed to be patched fairly quickly. Absolutely. Um, I think that governments believed that uh, this was going to be it. But what I don't think what they fully understood was that although we don't have that many people who haven't been vaccinated, if they catch it, they may have to go to hospital and get very, very sick with Delta, let alone Omicron, but with Delta, absolutely. The other thing that's fascinating is back on the last weekly surveillance system that we were given, that there were about two and a half thousand cases, right? Well, around that time, the Department of Health had told us that at the end of the week of the end of November, if you looked at the venues that were attended uh, by a case, and of course, don't forget, they're not just school kids, they're also parents or staff, 74% were schools or education. And then by the end of December the 4th, it was 81%. Mm. And then by the end of the 11th of December, that dropped to 61%. And then it dropped to 34% by the 18th of December because everyone was going on holidays. Mm -hmm. And staff weren't going in and doing gardening and delivering things and all that sort of thing. But when we start, kids start going back to school, we are going to start seeing, sadly, more increase in cases in mm -hmm. schools, not mm -hmm. just from school kids, but from the staff as well, whose neutralizing antibodies have started to decline. Yes. So uh, I think that's where you, the GPs really do need to encourage the five to 11 year olds. And I have heard that the GPs haven't had enough of, um, of the vaccines delivered to them to be able to give those kids um, a, their dose one, uh, but they need a dose. And then, of course, I'll just remind them that the 12 to 15-year-olds across Australia, the 12 to 15-year-olds are only 74% of them are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So that's for, that's about, you know, year one, you know, the first couple of years of high school. So uh, they really do need to be protected because mm -hmm. if they get COVID or, or Delta, they're going to be very unwell because they haven't been vaccinated. So it'd be really nice to start to get them vaccinated and certainly to either encourage the five to 11 year olds to go out to the hubs, the vaccine hubs, if they don't have uh, the kids uh, vaccines, uh, because it would be really nice to be able to reduce uh, the risk of infection. Uh, and even if they don't know that they, their kids have got infection because uh, their 
they've got high, you know, immune response, they could be giving it to grandparents who have mm. cancer, uh, etc. So I, I think that they should start to tell their adults um, who have kids how important it is. Because remember, Australians have a very good vaccine response from the zero to five years at 95 percent. And that when they're not just getting whooping cough and diabetes and others when they're little kids for themselves, but they're we're doing it so that other people don't catch it as well. I don't know if you've ever had whooping cough. Have you ever had whooping cough? Oh, thankfully not. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, uh, I have to tell you, David, that you and um, the other GPs that I actually got whooping cough as an adult. And I started coughing and I, I had been vaccinated quite some time ago when I was a kid. And I used to teach about whooping cough, mm. <laughs> but I had forgotten that I hadn't had my, um, my booster. And I started coughing. Now the rest of the family, the kids didn't cough and the husband didn't cough. Anyway, I started coughing and coughing and it went on and on and on. And sadly I had to go to Hong Kong and I coughed and I coughed. It was very embarrassing. And then I realized that I thought I had, and I vomited on my suit. And mm. then it then it broke. Then I realized, oh, I've got whooping cough. Mm. You know, I did the classic. So uh, yes, I had whooping cough. And um, it goes to show that sometimes we adults uh, forget that we haven't had our update, our, our booster. And so as you're giving these adults or their grandparents their booster, please remind them that you love them for doing this. And that's why we want five to 11 year olds to have their shot mm. so that they don't inadvertently give it to the grandparents or anybody else. Very good points, Mary Louise. <laughs> Just moving on to something I thought I had heard, but I would love you to clarify. We're going to talk about something quite different. It's the long COVID and um, the issue of diabetes in post-COVID patients? Ah, what a great question. So there were over 200 um, studies looked at with um, long COVID. And what they found was that the majority of long COVID uh, was caused even more than three months after somebody had had COVID infection. So there's there was an assumption that it you know starts happening at about 12 weeks but in fact a lot of these cases uh occurred certainly later and they didn't all be hospitalized either now that was a that was a big shock and what they also found which you might not uh, realize is that when somebody gets long COVID, they don't just get one symptom uh they often get multiples. So of these 200 odd cases, they actually found that the main um, sequence uh, of these uh, long COVID was mental health, pulmonary and neurological disorders. Mm -hmm. And it occurred at six or more months post having gotten over COVID. I know, wow, wasn't that remarkable. And what they found was and as your gps will know this that influenza often gives um post infection depression mm -hmm. it's quite common well uh, so they published that 
19.8% of all cases got anxiety and depression after having influenza. But after COVID, it was actually 26.7%. So it seemed more likely. Uh, chest pain was um, higher. Mm-hmm. So in uh, COVID, chest and throat pain, it was about 12.8%. But with influenza, it was 7%. Abnormal wow. breathing, 18.4%. But with influenza, it was nearly 10%. And fatigue with uh, COVID, it was about uh, thir- nearly 13%. And with influenza, it was about 7%. Headaches, it was nearly 11% with COVID, and it was about 8% with influenza so that was quite interesting but what was even more interesting was that these things occurred uh, not just between you know a, a few days but they looked at it by between day one and day 180 and then they also looked at it by day 90 to 180 mm-hmm. so often post covid there was an awful lot of infections after that third and fourth and fifth month, and they were a multiple of things. So I was quite interested um, in this, and I identified that somewhere between three and six months, they certainly got anxiety and depression, so they were twice as likely than influenza, but along with anxiety and depression, they got abnormal breathing, uh, abdominal symptoms, uh, sorry, um, yes, uh, abdominal symptoms at fatigue and pain. So for your GPs, they need to look for anybody that's depressed. Mm-hmm. Now, some people uh, require, um, mention that uh, right from their dep- their diagnosis, they can get depressed. But mm-hmm. certainly if you're fine for the first you know, few weeks, you're okay. But all of a sudden, quite later, you can actually get depression. So anywhere between you know one to six months, you're, you can get depressed, uh, you know, five, five times more likely than, than anything that you'd see with influenza mm-hmm. or three to six months anxiety and depression. But with the, both of those periods, you'll get other infections, uh, as, uh, sorry, other ang- you know, issues as well. Now, when they looked for long COVID, so that's all long COVID, mm-hmm. but when they looked at sex, age and severity, certainly males, you are more likely if you were male than female to get long COVID. Mm -hmm. You are more likely if you were 45 years and older than you were if you were 10 to 44 years. And you were more likely if you'd gone to hospital than non-hospital, but you were still, you could still get it if you had been outside of hospital as well. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that, that, information is hasn't been going deeply into um uh this year or the end of last year so this was published in july 2021 okay so my point is is that um you could be getting uh you could be seeing many different things with delta because a lot of these um you know 2000 uh what was it, 250,000 survivors that were examined may have had uh, Wuhan, Alpha or Delta strains. So could be worse with Delta, we don't know. So just watch this space. 
you know, even if your patients haven't been to hospital, yep. they haven't had a severe infection, just make sure if they're feeling a bit low, mm-hmm. that of course it's, it's quite commonplace. So sadly that happens. Okay, then I've got something worse for you. The US are uh, just a couple of days ago on the 7th of January, mm-hmm. published in MMWR, the uh, website for, for morb- Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, mm-hmm. that they had followed patients, uh, young patients, 18 and under, and well, I think actually they were basically under 18. Sorry, they're basically under 18. Mm-hmm. And they had nearly 81,000 from March uh, 2020 to February 26, 2021. And then another group uh, looked at from March 2020 to June 2021. And that was uh, 439,400 odd. And they both identified that these kids under 17 were more likely to get diabetes compared to people who had a respiratory infection that wasn't COVID. Isn't that remarkable? Wow. I know. So in the group that looked at the nearly 81,000 kids, uh, the diabetes was identified at 0.08%. In the group that looked at at about, you know, 439,000 kids under 18, they had a diabetic rate that was higher at 0.25%, 0.25. Now, I can only assume that it's higher because they basically had a much better um, sample size. So um, that, and but interestingly, both of the groups had very, very similar median age of 12 years, uh, 12.3 versus 12.7 years. So uh, they were quite similar, but you know, 81,000 versus 439, uh, they both found um, diabetes was more likely to occur after um, COVID than a non-COVID respiratory infection. So it's still too early to know exactly um, whether or not diabetes in these children last for a long time. Are we talking type 1 or type 2? Any idea? Uh, they're talking type 1 or type 2. That, that, that's actually quite interesting. Mm, it is. It's quite shocking. It, it, and it's certainly a um, watch this space. A- and I think what is fascinating is I don't think they controlled for body weight. But nevertheless, you know, we have an indigenous population who, uh, regardless of their body weight, because they're they're not all overweight, they often have a risk, you know, the adults have a risk of diabetes. So I don't know if their children will be at risk as well. So remember, if you've got children who are under 18 years of age, and sadly, they didn't look at 18 and 19 year olds, like we do here, but under 18, please just keep a check on them uh, Mm -hmm. to see whether or not Uh, they certainly uh, were at risk. Uh, Hospitalization was low. So uh, hospitalization in the small group of 81,000 was 0.7% of that. And the hospitalization of the 439,000 was 0.9%. So very, 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 very similar. So, uh, you know, a, a, a small group. So our kids, 
can go to hospital. Sometimes they need to go to hospital. Sometimes they go to hospital because their parents are hospitalized and no one's there to look after them. But the point is um, just watch them and think about maybe a, a simple test for diabetes. It would be something you would never think about. It's not an yeah. association that makes sense at all. Quite right. Yeah, but, absolutely. But, but thank you for alerting us to this. Uh, just a single finger prick test uh, for a child under 18 who's had COVID and is beginning to exhibit signs like polydipsia, polyuria, or something like that. It's absolutely just got me by surprise, by the way. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and when the Americans looked at these kids for type 1 or type 2 and they looked and they, they found a very, very tiny proportion had some sort of underlying condition. Okay. So it doesn't look as if there was some genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. Well, you've given us a lot to look for now in terms of long COVID and, and very practical things at the general practice coalface. That's really helpful. I hear everything you've said about encouraging um, the immunising of kids before school and also making sure all of us who are probably facing waning immunity to go and get our boosters. Do you have any final messages for our listeners? I do. I wish that our GPs would look at long COVID for non-hospitalised people, particularly under 40. So for example, what I was talking about with long COVID, the mean age was about 39 years of age. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most of our um, group that get COVID, be it, you know, mild, are under 40 years of age. So it would be really interesting to ensure that they haven't had, you know, 12 weeks post uh, their infection, <laughs> that they have depression, anxiety, fatigue, throat pain, etc. Check them for diabetes as well. Um, and yeah, what else can I um, assist you with? But um, certainly, it'd be great if GPs got together and made a, a group because um, in Australia, it would be wonderful if your GPs develop their own, you know, watch this space group. Well, thank you for uh, actually allowing us to think about what we're looking for. Uh, I'm sure that if we actually somehow gather cases and, and, and centralise it, it'll be great for future researchers like yourself. Well, uh, look, I'm just an epidemiologist, so I do uh, love numbers and um, and I you know love looking at these things as as physicians, uh, you can learn a lot from this and about how you look after mm. and understand why people aren't getting vaccinated, why people may or may not get long COVID or diabetes or everything else. So mm -hmm. if there are any questions that I can help you with, to be the best physicians that you are, uh, just let me know. We can do another uh, chat. That just sounds so wonderful. I thank you for the time you've given us, Mary Lewis. That was most appreciated. It's always a pleasure. You have a very good evening. You too, David. Bye-bye. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. 
HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.